everybody, and welcome to the European VC Podcast. I am David, and I'm joined by my co-founder, Andreas. Today, we have Ben with us. Ben is the founder and managing partner at Titan Capital, an investment firm in Israel, backing Israeli, European, and American companies by providing growth, equity, and secondary capital to world-class internet, software, consumer, and financial technology companies, with a bottom-up approach to secondary and growth. I just want to pause here to say that EUVC stands with Israel condemning acts of terrorism and violence. The recent events in Israel have been heart-wrenching in their scale and brutality. Our hearts go out to all of those affected by these atrocities. However, this is not the focus of today's episode, nor something we'll deep dive on too much, as we feel we wouldn't be able to give it proper credence here as a small side segment. So back to the focus of our episode, Titan. Titan is raising a 50 million US dollar fund, investing in companies and venture capital partnerships directly and via secondary transactions. And is backed by top tier global investment firms, leading corporations and family offices. Of note, Target Management, which is a well-known investment firm that built an impressive track record in seeding some of the world's best fund managers, back Titan. Yay! So big congrats to Titan for being a Tiger Seed. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. As 2023 draws to a close, join us for a landmark virtual roundtable with the true OGs of Europe on the evolution of European venture capital. Mark your calendars for this pivotal event on January the 29th. This is your exclusive opportunity to hear from some of our founding figures of the European VC scene. We're bringing together a panel of industry OGs to dissect the transformation, current trends, and the future of European venture capital. Yaron Valla, founder of Target Global, one of Europe's few firms that count the AUM in the billions, would enlighten us on the evolving VC landscape and the emerging challenges and opportunities. Chris Wade from Isomer Capital, as one of Europe's true OG LPs, will dive into the intricacies of venture capital strategies in the changing economic climate. Kerry Baldwin of IQ Capital, as one of the most influential investors in European venture and early deep tech pioneers, will shed light on the tech-driven transformation of the venture sector, offering invaluable insights only few can give. Learn about the European VC history, current trends, strategies for success, and how European venture capital stands apart globally. This roundtable is a must for VCs, limited partners, and entrepreneurs alike. Don't miss the chance to hear from the best in class. Go to eu.vc, navigate to the events section and register to be a part of this transformative event. And also visit EUVC for more details and to secure your place in the future of European venture capital. If you're listening in and love our show, don't forget to drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values, values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Ben, let's start this thing off, as we always do, with how you got into venture. Thank you for having me, Andreas and David. Um, I got into venture, I think, um, you know, it all starts at the army. You know, in Israel, uh, you're obligated to go to, your, to the army. In my case, I was actually seven years. Uh, I was an officer in the Israeli military intelligence. 
Uh, I was at the research, central research division. It's a division that's in charge of researching threats and uh, gives recommendations to strategic uh, decision makers. After the army, I uh, went to uh, study economics in Tel Aviv University. And when I graduated, I was uh, recruited to work in investment banking in Israel's largest investment bank. Um, and initially, they gave me the role that nobody wanted at the firm, right? So they gave me the, being responsible on agriculture business, which is not an easy investment banking area because there are a lot of, a lot of movements, M&As and fundraisings. Uh, but nonetheless, I, uh, I, had a, I had a lot of luck when I started and I found myself at the right time, at the right place. And I led one, what became one of the largest transactions at the time. I sold uh, a business to, to Mitsui. Um, and that was promoted very quickly to be a managing partner and heading the technology, media, and telecom investment banking activity for the bank. And you know, on a personal level, I led more than 35 uh, transactions, if it's fundraisings and M&A for uh, some of Israel's uh, sought-after internet and software companies. And then after five years, I became an investor. Um, I worked in one of Israel's largest growth equity funds. And uh, after you know, almost a decade doing investments and uh, banking, I've decided that uh, um, I built this uh, competitive edge, both from my experience from the army, which is more analytical and research, and at the same time, very transactional from investment banking. I thought that's the, the right time for me to uh, strike out on my own. And uh, in 2021, I founded the, the Titan Fund. We're very happy you did. Let's continue on that journey. And, and I'll ask you to share with us a pivotal moment. We always ask this and I love it. Share with us a pivotal moment in your life and how has it shaped you today as an investor? Sure. I think, you know, for me, I'm an avid reader. So one of my pivotal moments was actually reading uh, the book, uh, The Gorilla Game. It's a book from 1999 by uh, Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey Moore is very famous for many books uh, like the, you know, Crossing the Chasms and the like. But this uh, book, it was a pivotal moment for me because it was the first book that coherently explained why are technology companies being valued on revenue basis and not EBITDA basis, right? This is one of the biggest mysteries <laughs> an investor can have when he enters uh, venture capital. This book explains how high-tech markets work. Why is a certain company command very high multiple uh, versus their comps, which are much lower multiple being traded on. And so th this was you know, a very striking moment for me to understand the market it happened you know, 10 years ago. And still today, this book inspires me in anything I do. As, you know, as the Titan Fund, we're looking for the Titans, right? For the best of the best technology companies, you know, companies that other companies are building on. So that's, that's one of the things. Another pivotal moment in my career, I think, is my investment banking experience where, you know, through the years I led the tech banking, I, I, I identified many strong, uh, you know, inefficiencies of these locations. One is, you know, just the fact that, you know, in my time back then, growth investing makes much more sense than venture capital. When you look at different strategies, you see, um, you know, what's their return profile, the risk profile, and the time. Okay, so these three elements, you know, for some periods of the market, make more sense, and the market is leaning towards a certain strategy. And, and but most of the time, there is a winning strategy. And so that's the realization that there are certain elements and strategies which are just much better in a certain time. This was a pivotal moment. Another dislocation that I noticed back then is just, you know, the, back then in 2016, 2017, the, the premiums attributed to public markets were very high. You know, if, it didn't make sense to me that a private business can just go to an IPO and be valued twice and plus. Um, so that's another, I think, realization that uh, 
re re really was pivotal. And lastly, you know, very relevant to what I do today, uh, just the, uh, the dislocation between the primary and the secondary market. It didn't make sense for me throughout my career that in, on one hand, investing primary shares in a company uh, with a bit more protection or a bit more, you know, uh, entitlements um, should be valued much, much, much more than just owning common shares. Uh, so the difference and the arbitrage between those primary and secondary markets uh, really was like a pivotal moment, I think, for my career. You just said the three things there that I think are incredibly important. And we will, you know, I think that they're, they're perfect to dive deeper on. But we, we'll go to the take a stance round now and then we'll get back to them because I think they, they should be treated, you know, <laughs> with quite a long segment. Take a stall. So, Ben. Give us your stance on the following quote from Simone from Borske Fund, which is... If we say fix the system, I think it means fix the man. I can see why the quote makes sense, but in, in, in my perspective, uh, I, I don't agree with these assets. The reason is, if you look holistically on how uh, venture capital works, in my opinion, is that uh, the number one risk for a company is there's no demand for the product. It doesn't... It, it, it doesn't correlate to the founder and the execution capability of the management team. Uh, it's really about solving a pressing need and finding a good solution, which is repeatable and across industries, etc. So it's really about finding the problem. Changing the CEO uh, would not uh, make uh, much difference. By the way, there's you know there's a there's a chain, right? You first you change the the chief revenue officer, then you change the the marketing officer, then you change the CEO. But this, that happens in every you know, tech company, right? Thank you for that, uh, Ben. So as, as Andreas said, um, you shared a lot there in your, in your pivotal moments, and I think it's super interesting to deep dive on. I want to pick one. I'm sure Andreas will, will reel us back into other, other parts of that, certainly. You talked about the dislocation between the primary and the secondary market, which I think... In a time like today, it's an extremely interesting, interesting topic. So without diving too much into it, I'll just ask you to kind of those learnings. How are they playing today in the way you look at the market today? So again, I'm going back to the, the cycle element, right? The VC cycle. You know, sometimes primaries makes more sense. Sometimes secondaries make more sense. The cycle changes primarily because of supply and demand of capital or supply and demand of capital to risky assets. That's the end of the day, the main driver. And I think today, uh, looking at you know, the coming one or two years, we just uh, went through a, a you know, we were in a hype cycle, right? In 2021 was the peak of the hype of the cycle, and now it goes down. The secondary market, I think, is very interesting to invest uh, during this time frame because, uh, first of all, there's a lot of capital being deployed in, in the last 10 years. Like, it's very easy to forecast uh, what is the tapped NEV that needs to be exited in the, ne the next 10 years, right? So investments are, have been uh, substantial. Secondly is the amount of shareholders, right? And the amount of shareholders in tech companies, it used to be the case that you have just a few. Uh, now there are, you know, in each one of the ecosystems, if in Israel you have 250 funds, and the UK you have, you know, more than 120. In Berlin you have, again, more than 100. Um, in each one of those ecosystems, you have like 300 angel investors plus, right? So that's a lot of stakeholders 
and those stakeholders have their first needs. So when the, as the market matures, there's more activism in portfolio management in VC. Would you also agree, Ben, that, that the amount, the sheer amount of new LPs into the asset class also affects that? Because, again, you're talking about shareholders from the, the fund side, right? The investor side, but then you have the investors' investors, right? Uh, is that something that you also see playing a role in how? Yes, definitely. Look, I think the, the incentive structure of a new player is very different than an established player. New players that are getting into market, uh, they want to prove themselves. They want to build a track record and they want the track record to be realized, right? So the new players uh, will likely to uh, uh, sell earlier than the established players, right? Because they want to achieve this, you know, to secure their next fund, for example, yeah. right? To secure their activity. But I think, you know, the, the other element that really contributes uh, to the proliferation in the secondary market is, is just the fact that, you know, there's two reasons to sell, as they say. It's either things are going very, very well or either things are going bad. Um, so the uncertainty is just climbing, right? The IPO markets are uh, called uh, the investors that thought they were going to have an exit uh, in a short time frame now realize they will need to wait longer uh, with the risk of down rounds and liquidation preferences. So obviously, a lot of players are now exploring their options to see if they can take some money off the table. So definitely uncertainty is one of the accelerators of the activity in, the, in this market. You stated a very fundamental premise, which was that, you know, for your whole strategy and, and, and thinking, that there are times where you want to be a primary investor and there's times where you want to be a secondary investor. Common wisdom is very often everyone shouting from the rooftops, you cannot time the market. You're almost saying the opposite when you say that there's a time when I want to do primaries and there's a time when I want to do secondaries. Why do you think that the statement of you want to or you can't time the market is wrong? I think the statement you cannot time the market primarily relates to the public market. You cannot forecast the public market because it has few other effects. There's, you know, what is the fundamental generating fundamentals from the companies and how the market reacts. And this is very hard to forecast because it's driven by, you know, trends and, you know, the discourse of the day. In the private market, it's actually the opposite. You can time the market, you can enter to businesses when they are down, uh, with the hope when they uh, revive, you'll have a bigger exit. So no, I, I don't agree with no timing as an investor of the market. I think in a sense, VCs has a different, uh, playing a bit of a different game in terms of their own business, right? They cannot time the market. They need to continue to invest, right? They, this is essentially a service uh, for their LPs. There's a lot of you know, consideration within the fund itself, uh, how to time the market or how to spread your uh, bets uh, during the investment horizon. But that's another question. And what you say, so your Titan has a risk profile, right? Probably you might say significant <laughs> in the sense that, that, you know, in the sense that you, you, you do try and time the market, you do try and step in and out from, from the different asset classes or how we should put that different assets, depending on what, how you see things moving. So whereas if, if you're an LP, you tend to say that you, you want to do, you, you don't want to go out of venture. You want to stay in venture. If you do venture, you do deals every year, right? You invest into managers every year because you don't know wh exactly what, when, what's going to happen, right? But then, what you're saying is not as an LP, you want to be going in and out. You say, well, you want to be, you want to go long, you want to go long on venture and do every every single vintage. But then you also have a part of your portfolio where you want to be acting like you are, Ben, 
with Titan and say, well, th there's part of it that, that I'm okay with that I am trying to hear bet on my own ability to time the market. Am I right in saying that? I think so. I think that for venture, uh, first of all, what type of venture? Early stage venture, for example, uh, doesn't really fluctuate with the macro conditions. And you can see that in the pricing, right? The pricing, you know, Michael Mabusin always talks about, uh, you know, the pricing tells you everything. In terms of uh, later stage, etc., I think it's it's a quite different uh, because sometimes things are overpriced. And I think 2022 uh, was a prime example of not to invest in uh, overpriced companies. I do think people need to know how when to enter because if you look at VC, uh, this is well known that from 96 to 99 was the prime years to VC. If you lost. If you didn't participate in those years in yeah, VC, yeah. you're probably lost major, you know, major contributor to your results. And I think similarly to you know, 2017 to 2021, in a sense, if you didn't participate in venture uh, during this time, it's also a, a hurdle. So far out that you get your liquidity from venture, so you can't time it in terms of, you know, well, is it going to be in 2025 that I don't want to be in? The exiting funds, or do I, do I, do I want to be in the 2027? No, the, one needs to, you know, uh, increase the velocity of investing at the right time. So, for example, if you've had, uh, you know, a thesis about where the market's at, for example, 2018, for an early stage investor that is entering in a price which is keeping almost constant through the cycles, obviously you need to invest more because the uprounds will be faster. Um, so those are the, you know, the vintages that I think will likely there, you know, if you enter at cost, their valuation is, is very high. And presumably the companies are more mature because they were able to sell. Uh, now going forward at this state of affairs, probably secondary investing will make a lot of sense in the coming two years, just because you can cherry pick, you know, and to be a real bargain hunter, right? So you can cherry pick the best companies entering depressed prices. In our chat, Ben, uh, first, I think it was the first time you and I uh, spoke. You you shared some some cool kind of uh, way of thinking slash. For, I don't necessarily want to call it a framework because I don't think it's a framework. But you kind of expanded a bit on the different shareholders as you just did now and the different reasoning for each one to sell and their timings to sell. And I think that's really interesting insights for many of our listeners. You talked about private investors, you talked about fund managers, of course, you've talk, talked about management and employees, et cetera. So I'd love, I'd love to kind of uh, uh, ask you again to go on that, go on that, on that reasoning because I think it's incredibly insightful. So when you're a primary investor, you're dealing with management, right? You're investing in the business, they issue new shares. Uh, on the secondary market, there are, I would say, three buckets. Uh, one is the, the angel investors. So they, are, they have personal needs, typically after 12 or 14 years. Uh, the angel doesn't really have a very strong, uh, you know, frequent relationship with maybe a new CEO that, you know, uh, was changed already. And he sees many new investment opportunities. So he, he's a bit tired. He's just tired. Uh, he wants to invest in other companies. Um, so that's, you know, typically angels. In the same bucket of investors, you have fund managers. So fund managers have a, a specific timeline, right? So typically 12 years. And, and I was there, like I was there in the, in the situation when you need to sell down your assets in the end of the fund. And I can tell you, it's not, uh, it's not hunky-dory, like nothing is great. <laughs> the market is not there, things are not there. And, uh, but by the way, it's not only when the fund is ending, as I mentioned before, 
if you want to raise your next fund, you need to show results. So it's another motivation to, to sell out. The second bucket is the employees and founders. So management team, those uh, investors are typically concerned by personal needs, right? Uh, dramatic uh, life events and, and mainly buying real estate. You know, I want to buy a house. That's the, you know, more than 50% of the reasons uh, someone says. Another bucket is uh, the LPs in funds. So they have, again, like uh, different considerations. I think for LPs in funds, we see a lot of re regulatory issues, right? If it's uh, China that they stop investing in overseas funds, if it's uh, Russian investors that cannot uh, you know, reallocate uh, their funds, if it's uh, in, in, in Israel specifically, uh, you know, we enjoy this because we have a very uh, cosmopolitan uh, high-tech environment. You have Chinese, you have in, uh, US, you have European. Uh, so you have a lot of those issues. Th those are typically the, the reasons investors want to sell out. Could I ask you on, on that note of the, of the different profiles, how are you, because it's always to me vexing, <laughs> how, how you as a secondary investor source investments, because you know, it, it, it is quite a bit more difficult in quotation marks, or at least the book is less well-written and less well-published uh, than how to resource uh, great primary investments. Yeah, it all starts at uh, get, getting an understanding about what companies you want to own. So one needs to develop the skill, right, of choosing, selection, which companies you need to zero on. So I mentioned the Gorilla Game. So uh, we're looking in our fund, for example, in categories. We're not looking at, you know, single companies. Which categories are there? Which one are not too competitive? Which one in their maturity level are not already commoditized? And within this small new dynamic in the market, which is the likely winner, okay? So you need to gather understanding and really connected to rigor analysis of markets uh, and pricing and dynamics. Then you start the bottom-up approach. The bottom-up approach is looking at those companies, what's the best way to enter? I will not disclose here all our techniques, methods, structures, you know, the know-how we have um, and, uh, you know, the the value proposition you need to develop, but there's a lot of complexities because it's not only one needs to know the shareholders, you know, private shareholders and private companies. Uh, one also needs to know the founders. You need to add value to those uh, founders. You you, they need to want you to buy the secondary. Thirdly, you need to, you need to know how to transact, right? So it's not like, it's, it's not an easy transaction. In many cases, um, you know, profit sharing mechanisms, you need to maneuver between the management and shareholders. And lastly, you know, the due diligence you have is also much more complex than primaries because it's not only the counterparty uh, that you need to understand this motivation. You also need to vet what are the others. Why am I seeing this? Right. So you have a very, very different, uh, many different types of level of diligence one needs to develop in order to do this uh, efficiently and effectively. So Ben, I, I'd love to ask you because. You always say that the fund size determines strategy, right? And I think that what you just shared with us in terms of you are looking for this, the categories first, and then you're looking for the and you're and there you're looking for categories that are less competitive. And I'm looking, of course, at at and you doing a secondary strategy with a fund of fifty million in a market where, uh, you know, I, I said it just before we, we went on here, I came just out of a call with Kemper from, from Industry Ventures, who just raised 1.4 billion, partly for secondaries, right? And what I spoke to him about was in secondaries, 
is very much for a player like you and, and for many of the new players we're seeing coming to the market, the minimum ticket of the usual secondaries investors is oftentimes five million. So that's a there's a huge opportunity there. And that's at least my thinking for for an astute investor to come in and say anything below five million is very difficult to sell in, especially in Europe. Um, but I'd be curious to hear if that's also what you're finding and that's the opportunity that you're seeing. Yeah, like this is a part of it. I think a major contributor to the market opportunity for us is, as you said, the secondary market is dominated by mega funds, huge funds. You know, as a fund managers, they, you know, some of my peers are concerned to increase their AUM, right? That's that's their main concern today, <laughs> to be, to uh, increase their fund sizes. Um, and yeah, that's a problem in secondaries because actually the most profitable transactions. Uh, in the secondaries is uh, with counterparties that don't have, you know, the information as an institute investor. They don't have the influence. Uh, they don't have the visibility to the understanding of the public markets. Uh, they're, they're, they're a bit, uh, you know, their uh, viewpoint is more short-sighted than a long-term investor. Um, so, yeah, definitely. That's the most, uh, you know, I think the small-scale secondaries uh, is probably uh, where you can, can find the biggest bargains. I want to ask you another question before we go shout out. And that is, you said in the beginning, actually before this segment, a point on we normally uh, price on the back of, of, of EBITDA, but then here comes venture and we price on the back of revenue. And and that was perplexing for you. It was one of your pivotal moments realizing that, okay, there's, there's a good reason to do this. Now we've kind of shifted into a time where everyone's talking about uh, profitability again. And some are, would even go so far as to shake their head at the, at the fact that you would price a, uh, uh, an IPOing co- company not on profitability, but on revenues. So, Ben, I'd love to hear your take on that. The market, where we're at, do you think that, you know, that we're, we're overcompensating and going too far? And for that reason, there's an opportunity? Enlighten me. I, I think you're right to allure that because... You know, in the end of the day, there's a, a, a very nice McKinsey uh, report about what's the probability to have a large exit uh, for a certain, uh, you know, growth rate. Okay. Um, in software, in internet, if you don't grow, you die. Because the technology markets are moving so quickly. If you grow slowly, you, can, you don't have the luxury of not growing. So in, in, in that sense, growth is more important than profitability. But there's, you know, moments in the cycle uh, that only profitability is important. And there's a moment in the cycle that a combination of growth and profitability is the nice uh, ratio to aim for. So if you say my, you know, and maybe other central scenarios that, you know, probably four or five years in after the crisis like uh, you had in the 2000, uh, the technology market will come back. So if that's a central scenario, you're not only looking for to invest in companies that are going to appreciate uh, you know, in fundamental level, the revenues, if it's uh, 100% year by year or 80%, but also you can expect a multiple expansion. Yeah, and, and I think that's a very interesting point in the market right now where you can enter into great companies in low multiple and enjoy both of those elements in a few years. In Europe, we have for a long time not have had DPI in, in Europe, and we have a low, small, short track record for DPI compared to the U.S. You're investing in both Europe and the U.S. You don't care whether it's here or there. 
So an asset in Europe is being compared right up against an asset in the U.S., just as apples would be to apples. I'd love to ask you, how do you think about the ex exitability of, of European startups? Because it is notoriously more difficult to exit a startup in Europe than it is in the U.S. We have many great companies that go on to be great companies that, that are not exited. I understand. And, and as, as you said, there, there are differences. But I think these differences will, will decrease in time. And, and the reasons that those uh, differences uh, will decrease is because we're really talking about the technology markets. It's not like we need to fly or call up or see all the clients, right? Those companies are beginning to be more global. People are, you know, for internet and consumer technology companies, people just, you know, self-serve through the internet. Um, so as the markets are becoming more global, I don't think, you know, what is a European company? You know, what does it mean? The HQ is in Europe, the customers are in Europe. So it's really like, the, the, I don't think, you know, in the, in the long term, there will, there will be a, a difference in terms of their exit opportunity at, at the long term. But at the same time, I do think there's a, a massive opportunity to invest because, you know, the penetration rates, and you see many categories that are mature in the US, starts to enter to commodity uh, stage, has single-digit penetration rates in Europe. It's very easy to say, aha, this worked here in the US. Why wouldn't it work in, the, in, the, in Europe? Um, and many of those tech companies in the US, you know, Europe for them is like, you know, we're going to reach there maybe after an IPO. We're not going to do this, you know, in round A or in B or in C. So, and especially for companies that are serving enterprises and you need to know many different languages, right? So there's natural barrier to entry. Uh, and that I think a smart investor can choose the timing to, to take advantage of right now. Ben, thank you for sharing that. I don't know if I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I can't, I can't help but think how timely it is that we're having this conversation. And I just got a WhatsApp uh, kind of confirming our first LP secondary deal. So that's kind of, that's kind of cool. That's kind of exciting. So <laughs> I love that that happened. Uh, but now let's go into our shout out segment. Ben, I'd love to ask you to give a shout out to a co-investor, Angel or LP, for being awesome. And of course, do share the story behind that awesomeness. Yeah, for my sake, uh, side, uh, it will be definitely shout out to uh, uh, Mr. Rurik Khalabi. Uh, he was the chairman of uh, Agri Capital Corporation in New York City. Um, when I started out my career, I was actually assigned uh, to work very closely with Agri Capital. And he was really mentor for me. So he took me with him. Although the you know the age difference couldn't be more uh, greater, but you know I've seen I've seen how he's uh, you know handling himself with uh, management teams and in M and A negotiations, and I will I will not forget how he really led the processes. A real uh, investment banker like with a tradition, and, and this was inspiring, and I learned a lot from him until today. I always tell my team like examples from that time. I would love, Ben, to take us into our three biggest learning segment. I'll, and I'll ask you just to list the three to us first, and then we'll dive into them afterwards. My biggest uh, lessons, I think, from the you know, last 10 years should be one of the, uh, you know, just hard work. Uh, that's the recipe for success. You know, the business is a marathon run. It's not about, you know, you shouldn't be discouraged because of tactical 
failures. There is a long-term play. Um, and each morning is a new morning that you need to take yourself and, and move forward. You cannot be stuck in the... And I think it, it relates to every sector, uh, but it's really, really important for business. Um, the second thing that I learned, you know, there is a saying, if you don't know who's the fish at the table, you are the fish. It's, they are talk, talking about this uh, sentence in poker, uh, but it's really relevant for VC. Okay, VC is a very competitive game. You have a lot of smart people playing this game at the same time. One needs to understand, why is he seeing an opportunity? Well, why is he that? Like, is he like the first one or is it the last one, right? What is, is the company, is it like real ARR? Is it CARR? Is it booking? Uh, is it the financials? Where do they put their, you know, the, the customer support? Is it in codes? Is it in sales and marketing? You know, you can take a really, really bad company and turn it to be the best. Really, it's really, you know, there's a, there's a book uh, in the 2000s called Selling Air. And I think this is really something you see in, the, in high-tech markets. Maybe the, 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 the third thing that I learned is, you know, there's really only two ways. And I think there's a semi-sentence. There are only two ways to make money in software, which is one is bundling and, and there's unbundling. Only two ways. And this is a sentence that was uh, said by uh, uh, Jim Braxdale, who was the CEO of Netscape at the time. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's super relevant. Like, things don't change. <laughs> It really depends which cycle you are. If you're in a, you know, the, the market is in its peak, everybody's, you know, all the enterprises are uh, seeking to optimize revenue, not to optimize revenues, to, to be upside seeking. Um, so they will uh, seek uh, to have, you know, more vendors that will allow them to capture this opportunity. They will seek a best of breed approach to just to buy the best products, best vendors. In a downturn, uh, companies are, you know, more cost cutter. They are downside mitigating, right? So they will seek a platform solution that give, uh, you know, a, a, a good enough proposition to the enterprise, but they will be much cheaper, right? So there's only two strategies in software, <laughs> and that's that's this sentence really was profound uh, for me, and I, I see that every day. I want to dive into the second one, which is if you do not know who the fish is at the table, you're the fish. I want to ask you a very frank question because as a secondary investor, I think you're often at a table with a, quite a few fish, uh, especially when you're not looking at the very large transactions. So I'd love to ask you, could you tease out some of the core things for the fish at the table to be thinking about to maybe level up from not being fish? So I, I can tell you our approach to things. Uh, I cannot speak to others. So because there's a lot of, you know, investing, it's a, you're playing a, in many dimensions at the same time. My partners and I know each other for more than 20 years. We, we, beget, we met in the army, the intelligence uh, in the army. Uh, and we bought this, meta, you know, this approach of being an investigative uh, investment firm. Um, it's not only to look at the opportunity is to look, you know, to, to find untraditional ways and signals uh, in order to understand the situation. Like if someone says, everything is well, not, something is weird, right? You need to ask yourself, what do I don't know? What is not telling me? If the counterparty says, I need to close down my fund, uh, it, that, does it really? Like, can he just uh, have an extension? Someone says, I need money. Does he really need money? Like, there's a lot of elements uh, that you need to, to be cognizant. This is a game. 
and you need to know how to uh, form a, a, an opinion about the situation. And everyone needs to develop their own methodologies for himself. I cannot uh, tell you the, the secret sauce because I don't have it. We just developed you know, our own things. Could I ask you, because you did link it to your time in, uh, in the military and in the intelligence space, could you tell me a bit about how you utilize that experience as an investor today? Yeah, I think from well, what can I? I think uh, you know things that I took and inspired from the army is not necessarily you know definitely not the technology, right? It's not. <laughs> I love that it was that. Well, we've got a pretty sick tech stack that I brought out on a USB key when I left. <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely not things like that, but the principles and the methodology of you know thinking about the data in terms of you know data sets and how to slice it. You know how to how to systematically monitor sets of data, and what those changes in sets of data tell you, and what movements can you see in the market if you test the sets of data in a timely and consistent manner. Um, you know who is the individuals, what are the different entities. Um, you know how much time they invest in each entity. You know what are the waterfalls of those companies. You can generate an understanding of the of the counterparty, right? You need you, you definitely you know things can. You know, this type of approach can lead you to to forecast or to things, you know, to generate ideas of what secondary opportunities will will happen in the next, uh, you know, one or two years. Um, and this is something we're trying to do this uh, in our fund, uh, and it's definitely inspired uh, by our intelligence service. Definitely. On your website, it states very clearly that part of the beautiful thing for Titan is that you can do anything. Uh, you have a very flexible mandate for our audience who are listening in, who are looking for secondary investors, if not constantly, then once in a while, what, how should they be thinking about you, ticket size, stage-wise, that type of thing? And GP, GP, carry, uh, you're buying that type of thing as well? Yes, we're super flexible um, in terms of investing. We either invest uh, directly in a primary round, uh, more as a co-investor, if you will, and as a secondary, both directly in the company or indirectly as buying a, an LP position, if it's in Thailand fund or an SPV. Um, the ticket size we, we deploy is you know, up to $5 million. Um, but you need to remember that you know, th this is a fund and my investors are very, very large. Um, not only that you know, the, uh, some of that, that were mentioned earlier, uh, many of them are very large. We can co-invest with our LPs. So we, we do examine larger transactions. You know, the first transaction we did actually was large. Um, you know, more than, you know, it was 14 million. And uh, so we do examine larger transactions. And how small can you go? So that, that's the thing that we're, we're proud of. Like, we don't have minimum. Like, if there is a company we like, we should, you know, for us, it's accumulating, accumulating positions in the companies we like. So we don't really have a minimum. Um, the only restraint is that you cannot be, you know, it's not a 50K. You know, the, we, we need to deploy the fund. Uh, but yeah. uh, we're not concerned. We're not concerned in participating in the board of directors, we, we bring our value differently. We are actually, you know, we are very thoughtful of, you know, we, we actually bring a business plan to the company, how we're going to help them. But we don't do this as a board participator. And we don't have like a minimum stake requirement like growth funds, right? So we don't need to be 20% of the company. So I think those two elements allows us to, to be super flexible, um, to move super quickly and to bring outsized value, like 
and I can tell you that some of the portfolio companies don't, don't expect uh, a surprise the amount of value they can receive. I'm going to ask you a question that you might just say, I don't want to, I can't reply to that, Andres. We saw a opportunity to get into uh, SpaceX. I would love to ask you, how you think about SpaceX without having taken a deep dive necessarily? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what you have. I, 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 I'll tell you my approach is to, is to find those growth companies early so you can, you know, be more confident that you can reach your return target. What is your return target? If your return target is 3x return, I wouldn't encourage you to invest in billion-dollar companies. That's, you know, just the historic notes, right? So you don't have those amounts of exits in these prices. So, you know, the, again, like there's the, the, there's the notion of base rates. How many companies reach this stage and do this kind of exit? We're investing from early growth. So as soon as a company reaches $10 million, which is really like, what we say, the initial market fit. And this is the stage we look at a company up to late stage. But it really, it's not about the specific company. It's about just the fact that it's, SpaceX is definitely in their later stage, or maybe too late for an investor yeah. that wants to hit a, a fund return. <laughs> yeah. Now it's more from the angel perspective of saying <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay, I couldn't tease you into saying a bit about how you think about, <laughs> about SpaceX or Elon Musk. <laughs> <You try that. laughs> All right, we can go quick fire on that note, everyone. <laughs> and now, the quick fire. What advice would you give your 10 year younger self? I think just relax. Um, uh, I think that's very important that uh, uh, thinking long term, right? Uh, and taking one day at a time, everything will play out. I think that's, that's very important for young entrepreneurs. Uh, they want to accomplish to conquer the world, right? Uh, they don't need to lose sight of the, what's important in life, right? I think a career is very important, but other things are more, also important, right? So one needs to bear in mind all of this. Secondly, you know, just uh, investing yourself. I think reading books for me was really like how I uh, built a very profound uh, base of my knowledge, right? And there are so many books out there. There's a lot of opinions and so many writing. I think, in a sense, uh, venture become, you know, venture judgment has been talked about unparalleled than, you know, 10 years ago, right? So the, you can really get very smart in venture. So I really recommend just reading. <laughs> What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? Well, definitely um, VCs, emerging managers that are now fundraising are you know, now addressing their biggest challenge, right? Fundraising for VCs is, is the biggest challenge. You know, just tactical advice is, you know, first of all, uh, don't wait for, uh, you know, if uh, a, a final close or a first close to the closing. Do it on a rolling basis. And this is how you don't need to, uh, have everyone uh, move you know, at the same time at the same pace. You just uh, you know meet an investor and sign him up. Secondly, I really recommend using you know DocuSign or you know other similar service. Like I think it's one of the most embarrassing things as a as an early VC is to follow up. Like you know you meet with an investor, he's not moving forward. You want to follow up. How many follow ups should you do? Right? Yeah, that's a big question. And. Um, and, and I think those services are automatically making the follow-up easier <laughs> so uh, because they automatically follow up. And I think 
I think that re really was uh, a, a, an advantage starting to use this. Thirdly, maybe just realizing it's a numbers game. Um, you need to meet a lot of people. Um, not all the investors are, you know, uh, looking forward to invest in, uh, in VCs or uh, for earlier managers, etc. So you need to, 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 to have patience and to grow the top funnel. The top funnel is very important. And maybe the, the most important thing, when you're right at uh, the end, do everything in your power to close, okay? I'm saying this because when you reach the, 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 the final you know, few meters and something is stuck, don't, as a fund managers, don't um, be shy to become personal, to say to an investor, trust me, it will be fine, or things like that. I think people are very business, they're playing the game, but they need to, at the last stage, if there's something very, very important, get out of themselves and talk, you know, openly. Um, because it's a personal uh, business. And what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? First of all, um, not asking other VCs for recommendations. That was, you know, an, an earlier realization I had. Um, because when you talk to VCs and you ask them, you know, who do you recommend? Their incentive is to help their companies that are not necessarily the best performers, okay? Um, so wanting to be, again, to realize this is the situation. They will invite you to the companies not necessarily you want to be invited to, right? So that's, that's one. In the end of the day, the founders is everything. It's very, you know, I think for, for me, um, you know, when you need to have, you have a lot of moving parts. Who has the largest power in the room? And this is the CEO of the company. That's the founder. It's not the investor. It's not the, it's not the other counterpart. It's not the employee. It's the, the CEO. We'll, we'll listen to him at the end of the day. Another realization is just the fact that it's, it's a flavor business, really. Like, the, you know, there's a few strategies in, in VC. You can either aim to invest in sound, long-lasting businesses. You know, you can you know, follow a lot of Warren Buffett-style investing and see, is the return on equities compounding faster than your competition? This is one way to win the game. The other way to win the game is not that, is to look for emerging categories that are threatening, not necessarily with, uh, uh, with the real base, um, but threatening for big companies. Those categories, you know, it's really, you know, like the book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. The big enterprises would not risk it. They will buy it out. Um, so that's a different game than really building a business. It's building a threatening business that talks in the slogans and has a lot of buzz. And yeah, and one can, you know, think about in this cycle, you know, when the money is, uh, is very expensive or the money is very cheap, what type of businesses you can build, they can grow quickly and make people, you know, enterprises scared, right? So that's, that's another realization. All right, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode of the EUVZ podcast, do drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe on U.BC. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. As 2023 draws to a close, join us for a landmark virtual roundtable with the true OGs of Europe on the evolution of European venture capital. Mark your calendars for this pivotal event on January the 29th. This is your exclusive opportunity to hear from some of our founding figures of the European VC scene. We're bringing together a panel of industry OGs to dissect the transformation, current trends, and the future of European venture capital. 
Yaron Valla, founder of Target Global, one of Europe's few firms that count the AUM in the billions, would enlighten us on the evolving VC landscape and the emerging challenges and opportunities. Chris Wade from Isom Capital, as one of Europe's true OG LPs, will dive into the intricacies of venture capital strategies in the changing economic climate. Kerry Baldwin of IQ Capital, as one of the most influential investors in European venture and early deep tech pioneers, will shed light on the tech-driven transformation of the venture sector, offering invaluable insights only few can give. Learn about the European VC history, current trends, strategies for success, and how European venture capital stands apart globally. This roundtable is a must for VCs, limited partners, and entrepreneurs alike. Don't miss the chance to hear from the best in class. Go to eu.vc, navigate to the events section and register to be a part of this transformative event. And also visit EUVC for more details and to secure your place in the future of European venture capital. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values. values. United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.